Well, amen, and good morning, Ridgecrest. Great to be with you today. My name is Kyle. As Jesse said, I am a good friend of Matt's. I haven't seen him in a little bit, and the last time I was here, uh, all this new addition wasn't going on, so that's exciting to see. Um, my, by the way, my voice doesn't normally sound quite like this, but uh, when you got three kids all under six and they're always into everything, either they got it or you got it or you're passing it back and forth. So y'all hang in there with me today. I'm going to see if it lasts by the Lord's help. So it's a great honor to be here, though, to stand in a pulpit uh, where a man entrusts you that he stands week by week to speak the word where he will give an account to God himself for the way he stewarded these moments for the souls of men and women to stand before their maker. It's quite an honor to be asked to stand in this place and break open God's word for us to hear together. Well, church, as we begin this morning, uh, I want to start with a little phrase perhaps you've heard before, and that's just the phrase that life happens. You know what I mean when I say life happens? Right, life can hurt. Uh, Life can sometimes be hard. Things can happen that we don't understand or that we cannot explain. Life Life happens, and in fact, as you just heard, life happens to parking lots and sewage systems um, as well. I didn't know how I was going to incorporate that, but the Lord worked that out. But of all the things life happens to human beings, but of all the objects or things that life happens to as well, uh, the thing that enters my mind that life happens to perhaps more than anything is a cell phone. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, these small, fragile little objects that we exposed to every form of abuse that life has to offer. In fact, they say the average lifespan of a cell phone is about 21 months. I know, give or take a few. Life happens to smartphones, to cell phones. Now, if a cell phone is fortunate, has the blessing, it's gonna receive a a protective case uh, of some type, right? Uh, In fact, it might look like the case on the screen if they can show it uh, behind me here. This one happens to be called a life-proof case. Now, I'm sure your phone probably has a case. It might not have a life-proof case, but it might. Uh, The point of this case, according to the company, is that it is to allow your phone to live beyond its normal limits. The point of the case is to provide a, a durability, if you will, to allow your phone to thrive and function fully no matter what life throws its way. The point of the case is as the title of the company insinuates, implies, is to make your phone life-proof. So here's my question for you all this morning. Are you life-proof? Not your phone, I'm I'm talking about you. Are are you life-proof? Let me be more specific. Is your faith life-proof? Because you see, life happens to us all. In fact, for some of you right now, life's happening like as we speak. For some of you, life's been happening. For others of you, life is going to happen. Are you prepared and equipped to live beyond your normal limits? Have you, has your faith received a divinely supplied durability to survive and thrive no matter what life throws its way? Are you life-proof? I believe God wants you to be. In fact, I believe God teaches us how to be from his word, specifically from the book of Job. If you have your copy of God's word, if you would, make your way to the book of Job. 
If you've not already turned there, as you turn to this book, turn to chapter one, Job is a wisdom book. Job provides wisdom for when life happens. You might say the book of Job is a divinely designed custom case of wisdom for your life and for mine that you should dare not live without. Now, ultimately, we're gonna land on chapters 38 through 42 of this book, but, but we need to first take a little walk with Job to see when life happened, because life happened to Job. So starting in chapter one, let's start with the question, just who is Job? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about who Job was. At least he doesn't tell us his birthday, but we do know he lived long ago in the land of Uz. We get the first real insight into who this man was in chapter one, verse three. You see it there in the text where it says, of all the people of the East, Job was the greatest. Wow, what a compliment. Job's the greatest person on the planet. He's the most rich physically, and he's the most righteous spiritually. Job is Bill Gates and Billy Graham all in one man at the same time. Well, what happened to Job? Well, life happened. We'll just call it test number one. You know the story. One day, God and Satan have a conversation. In that conversation, God in verse eight of chapter one looks at Satan and says this, have you considered my servant Job? Watch this. There's none like him on the earth, God says. A blameless and an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God just calls Job to Satan's face, the greatest man on the planet, the godliest man alive. What does Satan say in return? Look at verse nine. This is the question of the book, by the way. Does Job fear God for no reason? Does Job fear you, God, for nothing? It's a mocking question. God, are are you kidding me? Job doesn't really love you. Only reason Job honors you, the only reason Job obeys you is because you've given the man every single thing he could ever come up with on any Christmas list in a thousand lifetimes. Job loves you because of all his stuff. You've protected him, you've blessed him. Job's a fraud, God. Job's faith isn't real. He doesn't serve you for nothing. What's God say to that? He looks at Satan and says, prove it. Prove it. Now Job's caught in the middle of a conversation between God and Satan. If you haven't noticed already. Prove it. You can take everything that he has, God says, just don't touch him. And for Job, all in a single day, life happens beyond perhaps anything you and I could ever imagine. To be more specific, Satan takes Job's life and stuffs it in that industrial shredder. Some of you have at your office. All in a single day, Job's oxen and donkeys, they're stolen. Fire falls from heaven inexplicably and consumes all of his sheep. Raiders show up and ride off with all his camels. A storm hits, kills all of his kids when the 
ceiling collapses on them. The only people, the few people that survive are a few of his servants who show up to Job to report the horrendous news. Life happened to Job. What does Job, well, how does Job respond? Look what he says in chapter one, verses 20 through 22. Then Job arose, he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Life happened to Job. Life happened so hard to Job, it knocked him on the ground. Life ever happened to you that hard? Job is grieving. He's grieving on the ground. But what is he doing while he's literally on the ground grieving? He worships. Did you realize it's possible to worship in life's most deepest trials and hardest situations? Job's on the ground. I mean, I can picture him face down, breathing in the dirt, and he's worshiping even there. Job's grief drove him to the ground. Life happened to Job. While there on the ground, he worshiped. He says this. When he says, God, basically, look, you've given and you've taken away, but blessed be your name. Let me translate what Job said. He says, basically, God, everything I ever had was from you. Everything that I've ever owned, I was ever entitled to. I never deserved it. I couldn't earn it. I wasn't worthy of it. But God, you gave it. And even now, now that you've taken it all away from me, I choose to serve you not for what you give me, but because of who you are. So let's just call it like this. Round one between God and Satan. Round one, God one, Satan zero. So what happens next? Well, you know what happens next. Life happens some more. Isn't that how it typically happens sometimes in life? When life happens, it typically happens a lot. Life happens some more. We'll call this test number two. Satan comes back around for round two of the conversation with God. Look at chapter two, verse three, the end of verse three. God says to Satan, he, that's Job, still holds fast his integrity, although you, Satan, incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Let me translate. God says, hey, Satan, so far you've claimed that Job wasn't who I told you he was, but so far your test has proved that Job is exactly who I told you he was in spite of the fact that Job knows I've allowed tragedy of epic proportion to strike him for no apparent reason. What does Satan have to say to that? This is quite a claim. He says, skin for skin. You know what that means? Satan has the audacity to claim for Job and Job's character that that man would gladly give up the skin of his animals, the skin of his own kids to spare his own skin. God says, prove it. Prove it, Satan. You can touch him. You just can't kill him. Job awakes the next day, as you know, with boils from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. He's in excruciating pain. There's no position that's comfortable. There's no balm that can remove these boils. He's miserable. And it's at this point where Job's wife has had all she can take. 
By the way, she's suffering too, don't you know it? Doesn't really narrate all her suffering, but as Job's other half, she's right there in the middle of this valley with him. She's suffering too. Look what she says. Job, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is exactly the response Satan is after. This is what Satan wants, but it's not coming from Job's lips, is it? It's coming from his wife's lips. Curse God and die, Job. In other words, let me translate, Job, look, is God still worth serving? He's taken everything from you. He's taken your family. He's taken your wealth. He's now taken your health. God's not worth serving, Job, for who he is. He's only worth serving for what he gives. Let me put it like this. Job's wife has a what faith? You know what I'm talking about? The kind of faith that chooses to trust God, that's motivated to obey God, not, not, not for who he is. No, something a little more shallow. What he could give. That faith under the assault of the storm of life is proving to not be life-proof. Job's faith is not just a what faith, it's a level deeper. It's down into a bedrock layer in not just the what God gives or could give and may give or take away, but in who God is. And that faith is holding steadfast in the midst of life's storm. Proving to be life-proof. Look what Job says to his wife in verse 10 of chapter two. Look at this question. Should we accept... Not only good from God and not adversity? Now, brothers and sisters, that's a rhetorical question, but we do not want it to be, do we? But that's a rhetorical question. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Round two, God two, Satan zero. Now, so far, Job's faith has been life-proof. But if you know anything about this book, as time passes, Job's pain begins to push him to question who God is. Job's faith, let me put it like this, it never breaks, but it does significantly weaken. You might say his faith begins to take on water. If Job's faith is a windshield, it's got a few dings in it, and those dings begin to show some internal cracks connecting the dots. His pain begins to push him to question the goodness of God. His pain begins to push him to question the wisdom of God and to question the power of God. And we see this as the book unfolds in the conversation between Job and his friends and then between Job and God Almighty, which is where we're gonna land. But let's just take a glance at the conversation between Job and his friends. This is the bulk of this book. When Job's friends show up, they genuinely wanted to help Job. They come and sit with him seven days in silence, and they hear Job asking the question that you and I, that we all ask when life happens to us, when we don't understand. What's that question? Begins with a W. Why? Why? You know, there's nothing wrong with asking God why when life happens. 
But you know, the problem for Job and the problem that could be a problem for you and for me if you fall into Job's and walk the path he walks is that Job is asking why, but he doesn't believe God has a good answer to his question. You ever been there before? You're asking God why, but you at the same time as you're asking, you really don't believe he's got the right or the good answer to your question. That's a bad place to be. So Job is a wisdom book. So what do his friends do? All three take three rounds trying to answer why. They try to speak wisdom into Job's questions. They try to explain what's happening to him. But brothers and sisters, all their arguments are essentially the same thing. They say, Job, man reaps what he They say God blesses the wicked, I mean curses the wicked, but blesses the righteous. They say, Job, you must have sinned, brother. For life to happen to you like this, you must have offended God. You must have done something wrong, but you and I both know Job's not suffering because he was in the wrong. Job's suffering because he was righteous. Job's friends collectively argue God is fair, so Job, you must have sinned. Job says, guys, I'm innocent. God is unfair. Let me put it like this. Job's friends argue in principle some things that are generally true, but not true in this case. And what they reveal to us is that all of our human wisdom collectively put together is still littered with the giant potholes of our own ignorance. Job's not suffering because he had done wrong. He's suffering because he was righteous. Job's gone two rounds with the devil. He's gone three rounds with his friends. He's about to go two rounds with God. And this is what he's wanted. Job has asked God why. He wants a court date with God. He says, God, if you would just show up and judge my case righteously, I would be fully acquitted. Will you give me a hearing? God finally shows up. But Job is gonna get more than he bargained for. Look at chapter 38, verses one through three. Chapter 38, verses one through three. This is God and Job, round one. God and Job, round one. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Now again, Job is a righteous man, but Job is suffering. Job has lost everything but his life and his wife. And no offense to my wife, your wife, or any of you ladies, he might have been better off without the latter in this case. The man had life T-boning. His faith was without a flinch, did not move, was steadfast. And yet as time passed, his faith began to weaken. He began to question God's wisdom, God's justice, God's goodness. So what does God say? Well, if you notice in chapter one, did you notice it says, then the Lord. Now you don't see it in the English there, but we haven't seen the name of God used here in the Hebrew since the beginning of the book. The name of God here is the name Yahweh, the one who is the great I am, the one who is the covenant-keeping God, the one 
of steadfast love and unconditional love, that love that never changes or wavers, the God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, the one who comes and reveals himself in a personal relationship so people can know him. That's who Yahweh is and who shows up for this conversation. Do you notice what he chose to wear for this conversation? A storm. Now, that's a grace in one sense, because had God shown up without anything to veil all his glory, Job would have found himself flat on the ground once again, this time not breathing in the dust. God shows up in a mercy to veil his glory, but also showing up that he's bringing his power and judgment to bear on this conversation. What does God say? Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He's speaking to Job. He's saying, who would have the gall to speak so ignorantly about things they do not understand. He says, dress for action like a man. Job, you want a piece of me? Job, do you really wanna go toe-to-toe with the God of this universe, the one who spoke it all into existence? Job, do you really wanna have a court date with me, me against you? You wanna arm wrestle, Job? God says, I will question you. Job, you wanna put your questions before me, you answer a few of mine first. Job wants to talk about his undeserved suffering. But instead of a cordial conversation on justice or authority or sovereignty, God's about to blitz the man from us with a pop biology quiz. It's a pop quiz on how the world works. Simple questions, just general. We don't have time to go through all of them, but I want you to put yourself in the desk that Job's sitting at. Take out your number two pencil, your piece of paper, even if it's just in your mind. Take Job's test with him. Just see if you can answer. What would your answers be? And if it helps, notice the graphics on the screen according to each question that God gives to Job. I'll just point out a few of them. Here's the first one. Question number one on God's quiz, chapter 38, verse four. Where were you, Joe, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Question number two, verses 12 and 13. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Question number three, verse 16 and 18. Have you entered the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Question four, verse 19. Where is the way to the dwelling of light, Job? Verse 21. You know you were born then and the number of your days is great or at least you act like it. Question number five, verse 33. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Question six, verse 34 and 35. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Question seven, verse 39, can you hunt the prey for the lion? Question eight, chapter 39, verse one, do you know where the mountain goats give birth? Question nine, verse 19, do you give the horse his might? Question 10, Chapter 39, verse 26 and 27. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Notice God's final question, chapter 40, verses one and two. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Job, are you qualified to question me? Job wants to talk about 
his troubles. God gives him a science quiz. Why? Because God wants to make the point to Job that, Job, I'm God, you are not. Now, let me just point out a few of the lessons that, that, that lie in the nooks and crannies between the lines of this quiz. Here's the first one. Job, if you can't answer a few of my basic questions about the cosmos and the way the world works, how dare you think you could ever understand fully why the righteous sometimes will suffer? Lesson number two, Job, if you notice my detailed care of every part of this universe, how much more do I know your needs and am I able to meet them? Lesson number three, Job, open your eyes. I'm God who's supremely wise, infinitely good and trustworthy. Trust me, brother, when you don't understand. How does Job answer God's first quiz? Well, you gotta turn to chapter 40. Look at verses three through five. This is Job's response. Then Job answered the Lord and he said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice. I'll proceed no further. Here's Job's response. He finally saw clearly that he did not see clearly. He finally saw God for his bigness and he saw himself in his smallness and his unworthiness and he said, I've spoken out of turn. I spoke when I never should have dared to speak. Job saw, as one author puts it, that human perceptions of justice are not the scales upon which the righteousness of God is weighed. Round one with God, God won, Job, zero. But God goes round two. I mean, you'd think that was enough right there. God goes further, though. Round two, check out chapter 40, verses six through 14. Listen to this. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind again, and he said, dress for action like a man. I'm gonna question you, Job. You make it known to me. And notice these questions, because this is really where Job went wrong in this whole conversation. Listen to this. Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God that you can thunder with a voice like his? Now watch the next set of verses because we have 10 commands where God basically looks at Job and says, Job, put on my shoes for just one day. Let's see how they fit. Here's how you're gonna put them on, Job. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who's proud and abase him. Look on everyone who's proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then all, then I will also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. But Job, since it can't, let me put my exclamation point on this conversation. Job, I got a couple pets that I want you to look at. I mean, literally, God has a couple creatures. We might just call them pets of God Almighty on his leash that he created, that he totally controls, that he just wants Job to ponder. I'm gonna read, this is some lengthy sections of scripture, some of the most fascinating in all the Bible to me. We don't have time to read it all, but follow along with me, beginning in chapter 40, verse 15. We see these two pets of God. Behold, 
behemoth, which I made as I made you, Job. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and the power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. His sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. He's the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies and in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For in the shade of the lotus trees they cover him and the willows of the brooks surround him. Behold, if the river's turbulent, he's not frightened. He's confident though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by the eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Pet number one. Now look at pet number two, chapter 41. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Or can you press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Look at verse seven. Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him, Job. You're not gonna do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He's laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. And watch this question. Who then is he who can stand before me? Look at verse 12. I'll not keep silence concerning his limbs or the mighty strength of his goodly frame. Look at verse 18. His sneezing flashes forth light. His eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. Look at verse 26. Then though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear or the dart or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee for the sling stones are turned to stubble. Look at verse 33 and 34. On earth there's not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is on high. He is the king over all the sons of pride. You know, of all the things that God could have done in response to Job, to whom life has happened in an unimaginable way, who wants to have a conversation about his undeserved suffering, Job takes God, that rather, takes Job to a prehistoric stock show and rodeo to see a couple pets that he wants Job to ponder. Now, brothers and sisters, we don't exactly know what behemoth and Leviathan, what these animals were. The Bible doesn't explicitly tell us. Scholars make all sorts of guesses. None's more common for behemoth than the hippo, or some guess the elephant, or buffalo. For Leviathan, they suggest the crocodile. Now, I'm just gonna be completely transparent with you today. Uh, By the way, what I'm about to say is my best guess. This is a hypothesis. This is not the word of God. God might correct me when I stand in his presence one day for what I'm about to say. But before God and my best study and best work, this is my best guess for what his word says is what I think these animals are. I think behemoth is something like what you see on the screen. And Apatosaurus, as even Christian scientists call him. An animal that fossils indicate was between 70 and 90 feet long a tail of 50 feet in length, a height at the hip of 15 feet, a tail rather of 50 feet, height at the hip of 15. Estimated weight, 35 
tons. Pet number one. For Leviathan, my best guess is something like this, what they call a Spinosaurus, an animal 50 to 60 feet long, weighing seven to 10 tons, a bony sail on its back about seven feet high, reptile teeth, an animal that would have moved as smooth by land as by water. What's God's point? Job is infinitely powerful, undefiable and irresistible as these two pets of mine are. I, as God Almighty, the creator of all things, who spoke it all into existence, am infinitely more powerful. I'm infinitely more irresistible, infinitely more undefiable. These two animals show God Almighty's infinite power and superiority beyond any human being's ability to question or to check. How does Job respond to God this time? Look at chapter 42, verses one through six. Job's final response to God. Then Job answered the Lord and he said, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this who hides counsel with words without knowledge? I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. Now watch verse five. I had heard of you by the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and in ashes. All three things that Job began to question about who God was, his goodness, his power, and his wisdom, Job reaffirms all three. But furthermore, as you see in verse five, he says, God, I'd heard of you, but now my eyes see you. What in the world does Job mean? He says, God, I knew you. I had a relationship with you, but even in the midst of what's happened as life's happened to me, in the midst of life's most difficult pain, most severe trials, God, I've received something more profound than my pain. I've received a personal, priceless, profound encounter with you that's allowed me to realize who you are in a way that I've never seen or experienced before. Even in the midst of life's most difficult pain, Job received something far more profound, and that was the presence of God Almighty. Job says, therefore, I repent. Did you see that? I turn from my wrong perspective, my small perspective of you and my too big perspective of me. I repent of questioning your wisdom, your goodness, and your power. That word repent there, by the way, brothers and sisters, can also be translated, I'm comforted. Where in a way, Job says, look, I'm repenting of my wrong perspective, but in, in God, in the midst of my pain, in your presence has brought comfort to me as nothing else could. Job's faith had pushed him to the limit. Job's pain had pushed him to the limit. But God used that pain to life-proof Job's faith. What is life-proof? Life-proof is faith that fears God, not for what he gives, but for who he is. Life-proof is faith 
that fears, follows, obeys, honors, and loves God, not for what he gives, but for who he is. Why do you fear God? Do you fear God for nothing? Life through faith is faith that's an unbreakable faith in the wisdom, the goodness, and the power of God. Let me just spend the last couple of minutes talking about how do you get it. How do you get life-proof faith? Because life's gonna happen. First of all, it's very simple. Number one, you must choose. You must make the choice to follow God. Not for what he gives, but for who he is. Your choice to love and follow and obey him must be based on who he is, not what he gives. That's choice number one. The question driving this book is not why is Job suffering? The question is why is Job righteous? Why are you righteous? Why do you pursue righteousness? Why are you here this morning? Is it because of what God could give you? How God might bless you materially? Or is it because you're here in response to the revelation of who God is, that worship is a response of who he's revealed himself to be and you can't help but worship God. Help worship him in your Sunday morning presence. Worship him in how you work. Worship him in how you relate to your neighbor how you parent your kids, how you love your spouse. Why do you serve God? Why do you worship him? Is it for who he is or for what he gives? Would Satan be as wrong about you as he was about Job? You see, Satan was as wrong about Job as the Grinch was about those who's down in Whoville. Thinking that if he just showed up and stole all the toys and treats, they would quit singing. But they didn't quit singing. Do you quit worshiping when life happens to you? Do you forget about who God is when life drives you to the ground? Do you worship while prostrate on your face, breathing in the dust of life? You gotta start by choosing to serve and worship God for who he's revealed himself to be, regardless of what he gives or takes away. But number two, you gotta realize that not all your suffering, listen closely, Not all your suffering is God's punishment for your personal sin. Not all your suffering in life is God's punishment for your personal sin. Now listen, there is a type of suffering in life that comes from God's discipline, that comes as consequences for when we sin. I'm not denying that. But what I'm telling you is we live in a broken world under the curse of sin that you and I have all contributed to. Not all our suffering, though, is God punishing us for our sin. God's ways are higher than our ways. God doesn't always come to you and me and say, hey, by the way, Joe, Jill, Kyle, David, here's what all I'm about to do, just so you understand. Did God show up and have a conversation with Joe before he had one with Satan? No. God's ways are higher than our ways, and even when our suffering seems pointless or purposeless, you gotta realize God's working everything in your life under his sovereign sovereign hand for your good and for his glory. And you cannot forget that. As one author said, he said this, we can... We often suffer, we sometimes understand, but we can always trust. And hey, by the way, if you notice closely in chapter one, God calls Job my servant to Satan. Did you know there was another servant of God's that he called to suffer? Not Job, but his ultimate servant to suffer. In fact, he called his one and only son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one to suffer. Why? Not because he had sinned or done wrong, 
but because you had sinned and done wrong. Because I have sinned and done wrong. Because Jesus was righteous, God called his one and only son to step into this sin-cursed, broken world to suffer in your place and in my place. To take on human flesh, to be born of a virgin, to walk this life, to live a life absolutely sinless. To get on that cross, to die for you and for me in my place and in your place, to suffer under the wrath of God Almighty. To go into the grave dead, to walk out alive. Why? To offer you not just forgiveness of your sin, but life forevermore. Life being joined back to your maker so that in this life, whether God giveth or taketh away, you have a hope that anchors the soul through Jesus Christ, that you've been made one with the maker who spoke it all into existence and who sustains your life at this very moment. No matter what you face or could go through. Have you trusted him for life? Life-proof faith begins by trusting yourself into the hands of Jesus Christ who loved you and gave himself for you on the cross, confessing with your mouth he is Lord, and believing in your heart God raised him from the dead to give you life because you were dead and separated from him. Listen, if you've never done that, before you walk out of these doors today, before you go home and take your nap or whatever you've got planned and lunch, I pray you will make a decision that will affect your eternity forever and entrust yourself to the only one who can save you, the only name Give it among men by which we must be saved. And that's Jesus. Thirdly and finally, remember that true wisdom is found in God and in God alone. True wisdom is found only in God and God alone. This book is not about suffering, it's about wisdom, as I've said. It reminds us of where wisdom can be found when life happens. Knowing where true wisdom is found should renew our vows, if you will, with God. Knowing that for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, that we should love him as he loves us, cherish him as he cherishes us. No matter what life throws our way, where are you looking for wisdom? Are you looking for it when life happens in God and in God alone? He alone has it. Life-proof faith is faith that fears God, not for what he gives but for who he is. Why do you fear God? Brothers and sisters, when you fear God because of who he is, you can say with Job, as the scriptures say, you say it aloud with me, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, but let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is so clear that you have revealed yourself to us in a way that we can know you, that we can have hope and life for eternity. Father, that in the midst of life's storms and life's happenings, we have an anchor for the soul through Jesus Christ, uniting us with you, Father, no matter what happens, that we belong to you and our eternity is secure. My prayers, if anyone's here in this building under the sound of my voice that doesn't know you, Father, They'd step out from where they are. They'd come grab one of these that are gonna be at the front by the hand to say, I wanna know and give my heart and life to Jesus. I pray that if those that are here that life's been happening, they just need to get on their knees where they are or at these steps and renew their vows with you. So to say for better or for worse, God, I choose to serve and love and honor you, not for what you give, but for who you are. They'd make that decision in their heart. They'd settle it today. They worship and love you. Not for what you might give, not for what you might take away, but God, for who you are, that's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, would you move in our hearts, would your Holy Spirit have your way as you know to how we must and need to respond to you today.
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.